You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 19th of January 2024 on Monaco Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Pakistan and Iran will give you context on the febrile border region and ask what's behind the recent strikes. Then to the Horn of Africa, where the dispute between Somalia and Somaliland may fan regional tensions. Paul Rhodes from Newsweek is here to scan the front pages. Good morning. We'll be discussing how US Congress cleared a stopgap spending measure to avert a government shutdown, the UK Chancellor talking up tax cuts, and why pubs and bars should stop selling large glasses of wine. Staying with papers, we'll look into the targeting of Ukrainian journalists, and we'll have a roundup of the latest business news. Plus... We learned that former governor of California and, in fairness, not the worst mediocre Austrian artist who has ever run a government, Arnold Schwarzenegger, had been running for... Watch trafficking? And we'll have a wry look back at the week and meet the director of the Oscar-tipped comedy, The Holdovers. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. North Korea has conducted a test of its underwater nuclear weapons system in protest against this week's joint military drills by South Korea, the United States and Japan. The US launched new strikes against Houthi anti-ship missiles aimed at the Red Sea yesterday as growing tensions in the region's sea lanes disrupted global trade and raised fears of supply bottlenecks that could reignite inflation. And NATO is launching its largest exercise since the Cold War, rehearsing how US troops could reinforce European allies in countries bordering Russia and on the alliance's eastern flank. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, yesterday, Pakistan launched airstrikes against alleged militant hideouts inside Iran, killing at least nine people, as Islamabad retaliated for a similar attack by Tehran two days earlier. The countries share a border of around 900 kilometres and militant groups with similar separatist goals operate on either side. There's been low-level insurgency in the region for the last 20 years, but it's highly unusual for either strike to attack militants on each other's soil. Well, joining me now from Lahore is Ahmed Rashid, a Pakistani journalist and author of several best-selling books, including Pakistan on the Brink. Ahmed, welcome to Monocle. Many thanks for joining us. I wonder if you could begin by giving us some context on this volatile border region? Well, the, the common denominator in all this is Baluchistan and the Baloch tribes who inhabit both the Iran side of the border and the Pakistani side of the border. Um, and the, fa- and the, the, the problem has been that the Baloch, have, the Baloch in Pakistan and the Baloch in Iran have both been fighting for many years for an independent state um, and militancy has been very strong there. Uh, there's also, of course, a lot of Baloch who are not involved in it, but certainly the fear of the Pakistani authorities is that militancy can return um, to this area and 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 be um, uh, make 
make it very difficult for for things to settle down. The immediate um, uh, the immediate issue was that um, Baloch, Pakistani Baloch, have been supported by Iran, uh, and I- Iranian Baloch have been supported by Pakistan, and um, this obviously has created enormous tension between the two states. So can you just recap what happened this week with the with the initial attack on Tuesday and then the follow-up? Well, I mean, you know, very briefly, um, Iran, for whatever reason, launched um, a missile attack against what it said were um, Iranian separatists being given sanctuary in Pakistan. Um, and uh, uh, the, Iran said that these militants who are hiding out in Pakistan um, uh, were planning an attack inside Iran, and given that Iran has faced a number of terrorist attacks in the last few weeks, um, the Iranians demand uh, in, insisted that they wanted to take uh, take out these camps, and they did it without Pakistan's permission. Pakistan was then faced with the dilemma of what to do uh, in retaliation. Uh, should they retaliate? And they decided that given um, the, the issue of uh, uh, militancy on the Pakistan side of the border, um, the the uh, the Pakistanis retaliated also. And uh, how unusual then is it for either side to hit targets across the border without informing each other? And and why is it happening now? Well, it, 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 I think you know that's a very good point and a very important point. Uh, we still really don't know the reason for. Iran to start this uh, fire uh, uh, on the border so suddenly, uh, given that, you know, both countries have good relations, um, uh, their leaders were at Davos, um, the the economic forum, and they met each other just before this, um, and, and Iran and Pakistan have shared a, a great deal, including taking a position um, uh, against the Americans, uh, and, and uh, supporting the Palestinians, etc. So it, it, it came as a very big surprise to everyone. But the long-standing problem is that um, the Baloch militants are uh, the, the Pakistani Baloch militants are finding a sanctuary in Iran, and the Iranian uh, Baloch militants are finding a sanctuary in Pakistan. And this is what this this issue has not. Uh, been resolved yet, and how does that play into the into the greater Middle Eastern conflict? Well, um, I mean, it it is a separate issue. I I I I do see that there will be a some kind of reconciliation at the end of the day between these two countries, um, but they will have to come to some agreement on how, what to do with the Baloch because uh, uh, the Baloch militants are not going to give up just like that. On, and they're fighting on both sides of the border. Um, what is needed is is both countries to sit down and develop a strategy um, uh, to develop the region, which is you know the the, the Baloch completely lack any healthcare, any education, um, any, any kind of uh, uh, modern amenities, um, and they are they have, they've suffered enormously. And what is needed is both countries to sit down not to carry out it for that, but to carry out um, a, a development projects which uh, both sides can adhere to. 
Uh, and Ahmed, what about other more complex geopolitical considerations? For instance, we know that Pakistan's military relies on US, Chinese and French fighter jets for its air force. I mean, it's probable that some of those foreign weapons were used in the attack. Also, Beijing is a key regional player. They have a development project on the on the Pakistani uh, Baloch part of the border. Uh, have those countries reacted at all? Well, I think all those countries that you name have been trying to bring about some kind of peace settlement between between Pakistan and Iran. China is the last country that wants any problem in the border because China has invested enormously in the Belt and Road project in Pakistan, and it is already facing problems because the growth of terrorism in both Balochistan and um, uh, the northern Pakistan, the tribal areas of northern Pakistan, have seen an upsurge in attacks and terrorist attacks. And China is is will be a big loser if so. It has already issued a statement demanding that both the countries settle their differences and stop uh, attacking each other. Um, other countries have equally been concerned because uh, you know this could spill over into. Uh, into into the whole region, and that means Afghanistan, Pakistan, Central Asia, um, and the, the danger is at the moment there is no sort of uh, um, a major problem, military problem, as there is, for example, in in in, in Palestine. But uh, there could develop a. A major problem very soon. Mm. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned Afghanistan. Of course, that that border region is also key to to global opium shipments coming out of Afghanistan. That's mostly run by the Taliban. How, how relevant is that in in this whole dispute? Well, Pakistan is finding itself uh, at odds with the Taliban. The Taliban are now supporting um, a Pakistani Taliban. But the, the uh, movement for the Taliban in Pakistan. They wanted the similar, similar Islamic system um, in in Pakistan that there now exists in Afghanistan. And um, Pakistan has been warning off the the Afghan Taliban, stop supporting um, Pakistani Taliban, and um, uh, uh, you know help us stabilize this region. But at the moment, there is this conflict uh, going on. Also, between Pakistani Taliban um, uh, having launched their attacks in in inside Pakistan, um, and the Afghan Taliban um, helping them. Mm. Uh, finally, Ahmed, uh, Pakistan uh, goes to the polls uh, on February the eighth. Uh, how does that play into all of this? Is it about in, internal political pressure? Yes, the, I mean the polls are due for a long time. They've been delayed a bit, um, and. Uh, there's enormous concern that the major opposition party, led by the uh, cricket uh, uh, captain Imran Khan, um, Imran has found himself in jail for uh, uh, over over um, steps that he took to um, uh, harness popular support. Um, the military has really been guiding uh, the the interim government that is sitting at the moment. Uh, and the military has uh, allowed these polls to take place, uh, but without Imran Khan and uh, without an opposition. And, of course, that's going to raise many issues after the polls. So one thing is having the polls. The other thing is being able to um, uh, make sure that the, the standoff after the poll doesn't become violent. Ahmed, thank you very much indeed.
That was Ahmed, journalist Ahmed Rashid, speaking to us from Lahore. And this is The Globalist. It is 10.11 in Mogadishu, 7.11 here in London. As we reported at the beginning of this month, Somaliland, which seceded from neighbouring Somalia in 1991 but is not recognised as an independent state by any other country, agreed a controversial deal with landlocked Ethiopia. This granted Addis Ababa access to Somaliland's port in return for recognition as a sovereign state. Somalia described the deal as an act of aggression that violates international law. Even as talks to discuss the dispute were happening in Uganda, Somalia has upped the ante by turning away a plane transporting officials from Ethiopia to Somaliland. And just yesterday, the Somali authorities denied landing permission to a Thai cargo plane at Hargeisa Airport, the capital of Somaliland. Well, joining me now from Brussels is Michael Keating, Executive Director of the European Institute of Peace and former head of the United Nations Assistance Mission in Somalia. Michael, it's lovely to have you back on the programme. Um, that's a potted history, but there's a lot more to the background. How would you characterise the relationship between Somalia and Somaliland since 91? Well, fraught, uh, <clears throat> I would say. Um, Somaliland uh, has struggled for many decades uh, for international political recognition, claiming that it has all the basic attributes of a state. And indeed, uh, it is more stable and more prosperous uh, than the rest of the country. The only part of Somalia uh, that can come anywhere close to competing with Somaliland is, is Puntland. But much of the rest of the country <clears throat> for the last 30 years has faced insurgency and local disputes, uh, terrible humanitarian problems. So Somaliland for a long time has been seeking this international recognition. Um, and Somalia's struggle has been in a way to persuade uh, all Somalis, including in uh, uh, Somaliland, that they, they would have a better future by being part of the federal member state. And they have not won the case uh, and of course, there's a lot of tribal politics uh, involved in this, complicated by uh, regional geopolitics with international actors, uh, you know, uh, pursuing their own objectives mm. and uh, uh, playing on many of these disputes for, to advance their own interests. Do we, are we any clearer about the terms of the deal between Ethiopia and Somaliland? No, I mean, the exact deal details to my knowledge, have not been actually shared. And another very significant thing is that even though at the meeting at which Prime Minister Abiy and uh, the president of Somaliland announced the deal, uh, they talked, it was the president of Somaliland who talked about recognition, but the Ethiopians have not been explicit uh, and official about recognition. And uh, overnight, there was a summit the outcome of the summit in Kampala, the IGAD summit, in which there's a, a strong declaration, um, you know, to which the AU, IGAD, UN, EU, US, uh, Saudis, and many others have associated themselves, saying that you know the territorial sovereignty, the, the, the territorial integrity and sovereignty of Somalia must be recognised, uh, and there should be no compromises on this. So. It's possible, uh, I'm not saying it will happen, but it's possible that Ethiopia may think twice about, you know, uh, converting 
what seems to be a memorandum of understanding into some kind of official political uh, recognition. So there are claims that the United Arab Emirates, which has been increasing its economic clout in the region, uh, played a role in striking the, the, the port agreement or the, or the memorandum of understanding. Do we know if that's accurate? And, uh, and why is what happens there important to the Gulf states? Um, first of all, yeah, I have seen no evidence that the United Arab Emirates is, you know, explicitly, um, uh, you know, supporting this. I mean, having said that, the UAE has a long and close relationship uh, with uh, Somaliland. It's interesting that the UAE joined the BRICS group on the 1st of January, and on the 1st of January, this deal was announced. And that would suggest that the Ethiopians, but this is speculation, might have consulted some of their, and Ethiopia also joined the BRICS, might have consulted some of the BRICS members before making this move. On the other hand, Abiy can be quite impulsive. So he may not have done that. Uh, but uh, the bigger picture is the, the UAE uh, does have a strategy for strengthening its uh, uh, control or certainly use of ports all along the Red Sea, uh, along you know the Bab al-Mandab, the Somalia coast. This is part of a much bigger picture uh, approach by the UAE. It's interesting that the Saudis have been very explicit about um, supporting Somalia, insisting that its territorial integrity be, uh, be respected, but the <clears throat> Emiratis, uh, to my knowledge, have not done so yet. I think the uh, Emiratis' influence in this part of the world has grown significantly. You see that uh, in Sudan, you see it in Ethiopia, uh, you, you're seeing it uh, in, in Somaliland. Uh, and as you um, suggest, this is part of a longer story of a rivalry between uh, Emiratis, Qataris, and indeed Saudis, Egyptians, and Turks for influence uh, in the area, which they see as part of their sort of broader strategic backyard. Uh, I would say the Emiratis and the Turks have probably been most uh, um, uh, adventurous and assertive in this regard. Uh, by getting involved in various ways, training uh, armed forces, building ports, uh, getting engaged uh, in one way or another in local politics. Uh, so, yeah, uh, these local disputes get complicated very quickly when they're overlaid by these regional rivalries. Mm. Uh, and finally, Michael, I wonder if this really has the potential to flare into more conflict in the already fraught Horn of Africa. Well, I mean, the Horn is characterized by a number of terrible conflicts. I mean, South Sudan, Sudan, we've seen the Eritrea one. Uh, within Ethiopia, there's also the conflict, the Amhara. There's the long-running running issue of the Gur Dam and the relationships between Egypt and Ethiopia. So certainly this does not help. Uh, I have to say, you know, it's too early uh, to, to provide a kind of full judgment on this, but I am encouraged by this statement by uh, the IGAD overnight. I mean, it is possible uh, and, and, and indeed probably more likely that things will get worse, but it is also in, not impossible that many of these states will realize that given the climate change impact, displacement, the humanitarian crisis, the economic lapse, that they do need to find more robust ways of resolving their political differences, and that they do need to strengthen organizations like EGAD and the African Union 
to that end. But it's not looking good at the moment. Michael, thank you very much indeed. That's Michael Keating there speaking to us from Brussels. Now, still to come on the programme. Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the holdovers. We'll hear from the director behind the Oscar-tipped comedy drama, The Holdovers. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. is The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Paul Rhodes, who's Deputy Publishing Editor of Newsweek. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning to you, Georgina. Uh, some 90,000 NATO troops will begin uh, the bloc's largest military exercise since the Cold War. This is what we've been reporting in our headlines. And I know that you've got more on that story, including a very alarmist headline from The Telegraph. Yes, The Telegraph uh, is was warning that civilians must prepare for all-out war with Russia in the next 20 years, which is, is, is quite worrying. And we would hope that this conflict would, with Ukraine at the minute would end. But apparently that that is the warning of um, Admiral Rob Bauer to say that, you know, it's not a given that we will live in peace. And uh, I guess uh, with, you know, I guess with uh, Putin, who seems rather aggressive and, and, and going for another extended term in office. And I mean, this is a, a likelihood. And with and this is a warning that was given to uh, Swedish citizens when they just joined NATO recently. Mm. And of course, they're right on the front line with Russia. Absolutely. And I mean, he's, he's gone much further talking about how societies can ready themselves, how there will be conscription, how there will be people called up, how they've got to, how whole institutions must recalibrate in order to, to be ready for this. Uh, David Cameron, too, that's our UK foreign secretary, has warned against a 1930s style appeasement of Putin. He promised that Britain would keep supporting Ukraine in the struggle of our generation, is what he called it. I mean, that is very warlike. Um, that, well, that it, it, I, it is a, a, a battle of ideologies, isn't it? It's, it's the, you know, the I guess the freedom in democratic West against, um, especially in the case of Russia, you know, well, I, well, I, I, they they claim to be democratic, but it doesn't seem so when Putin wins every year for the for for, for 20, 30 years, does it? He'll, he's going to outlast uh, Stalin, uh, it seems, as leader of Russia. And it's, yeah, so uh, we, NATO is preparing um, with uh, um, Operation Steadfast Defender 2020 to demonstrate their ability to uh, rapidly deploy forces from North America and elsewhere in the alliance for the defense of Europe. And they've got 90,000 troops um, joining this, which is the biggest since the Cold War. Um, 
Um, and it includes more than 50 ships, 80 uh, fighter, fighter jets and helicopters and drones, and 1,100 combat vehicles, including 133 tanks. So it's quite a big deployment. And very expensive. And luckily, the U.S. has uh, found a way that uh, it can keep funding not only exercises like that, but its own government. Well, yes, indeed. Um, they there, there was a, a, a stopgap spending plan that was approved last night by, by Congress, and about the only thing that was going up in spending was um, for military and defense um, in this bill. Um, it is the second time that the new speaker, Mike Johnson, has had to come up with a compromise deal um, and in getting on side with the Democrats to continue um, the, the government's um, funding to keep it going. And this, and he's only got six weeks now until March. He's really being hamstrung by his own party and the members of the Freedom Caucus who want to see a decrease in overall spending and more, except for more money to be spent on um, reinforcing the southern border. So, um, and it, it, Johnson has said when he when he became speaker, because of course Kevin McCarthy, his predecessor, was ousted by for making a deal with the Democrats to keep the government going. Um, it doesn't look likely that Johnson will be ousted in the same manner, and he wanted to keep obviously government going because it, it's an election year, and he said it's going to look really bad if we if we don't go keep you know, things going, but there's still a lot of work to do in, in bills to get to get a lot of approval. They've got $1.66 trillion of um, appropriations to approve to keep the government going until the autumn. That's extraordinary. And of course, as you say, this, this particular deal only valid through till March the 8th. Uh, but here in Britain, apparently we're all going to be richer because the, the uh, UK Chancellor says he wants more tax cuts. Yes. Um, this, In the hope we'll vote for him. Well, that's exactly. <laughs> I think this is the last roll of the electoral dice for um, uh, the Tories. And um, Jeremy Hunt, who's been in Davos, um, it was said, it's come to the conclusion that low tax economies are more dynamic and more competitive. And so he doesn't have the figures yet, but he's looking uh, for when the budget comes out in March to deliver a first tax cut. And then if he could squeeze in another one in an autumn statement before an election is called, then there will be, because they've just, they have reduced national insurance, which came into effect at the beginning of the year. So people are paying a bit less for that and businesses are paying a bit less for that as well. So there will be three successive tax cuts. And of course, if they can go in with that messaging um, into an election this autumn, then maybe they can pull off the miracle like John Major did in 1992 after Norm Lamont introduced the 20 pence income tax rate in the March budget. What do you think, Paul? What, what, taking the temperature around you, I mean, it seems to me that anything short of a Labour victory is just not in question. I mean, it, 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 it is a 20 points, a heck of a mountain to climb. Um, the Tories have had a dismal week. And, and I guess something like this would, would try to get the, the Rwanda debacle off the front pages, but it didn't even manage that for many of the, of the right-wing papers in Britain. Yeah. My best political story of the week was Therese Coffey uh, standing up in Parliament saying, why are you all talking about the Kigali administration? We're talking about Rwanda here. (laughs) (laughs) And these people are elected by us. How does that happen? Right, let's finish, though, with the fact that perhaps we're all electing them when we're drunk, because (laughs) apparently we drink too much. I can probably concur. But uh, there's now a a scheme to make sure that uh, we don't and that we don't realise that we're not. Well, this is uh, (laughs) this is this is the thing. um, Cambridge University 
University, they got 21 pubs and bars in England to stop selling large glasses of wine. So they would only sell small and medium ones that are to 125 and 175 milliliters of instead of the big 250 goblets that you see in some pubs. And what they found is that because if people, I guess they go for, if you go for a drink with two friends or you, you get a round each and that was it. And so people ended up drinking less. But this was also beneficial for the bars because they make a greater profit margin on selling smaller glasses. So they weren't out of pocket either. But there was a 7.6% drop in the amount of wine consumed at these um, establishments, So, which is beneficial for people's health. Although um, four of the 21 bars complained, um, uh, said that uh, drinkers complained that there were no longer large glasses of wine on the menu. And of course, uh, when it came to pints, no one wanted to try it with beer to serve a slightly smaller serving than I a pint. I find that extraordinary. So the, the, the authors of the study said they tried similar research with beer. They asked venues to reduce serving sizes from one pint to two thirds. They were unable to find any pubs, bars or restaurants willing to do this from almost 2,000 contacted. Uh, and, I, and I also think that when you look at who drinks what, i.e. I'm going to make a massive kind of general sweeping generalisation here, but that, that, that women are more likely to drink wine, men are more likely to drink beer. You don't, you're not mucking about with the men's drinks, are you here? <laughs> no, definitely not. As, as the comedian Alan Murray says, you know, it's a, you know, a pint for the fella and a, and a white wine for the lady. <laughs> I'll have a baby sham. Paul, thank you very much indeed. That's Paul Rhodes there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. North Korea has conducted a test of its underwater nuclear weapons system in protest against this week's joint military drills by South Korea, the United States and Japan, state media reported today. The new drone system is intended to make sneak attacks in enemy waters and destroy naval strike groups and major operational ports by creating a large radioactive wave through an underwater explosion. The US launched new strikes against Houthi anti-ship missiles aimed at the Red Sea yesterday as growing tensions in the region's sea lanes disrupted global trade and raised fears of supply bottlenecks that could reignite inflation. The attacks target a route that accounts for about 15% of the world's shipping traffic and acts as a vital conduit between Europe and Asia. And NATO is launching its largest exercise since the Cold War, rehearsing how US troops could reinforce European allies in countries bordering Russia and on the alliance's eastern flank. Major locations of the drills will be the Baltic states, which are seen as most at risk from a potential Russian attack, Germany, a hub for incoming reinforcements, and countries on the fringes of the alliance, such as Norway and Romania. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's time now to take a good look at the media in Ukraine. Media freedom has been somewhat curtailed because of security concerns since Russia's full-blown invasion of the country. But now it appears that prominent journalists are coming under direct attack. This has ramped up from online threats, illegal surveillance and wiretapping to physical harassment recently. And an association of media outlets and watchdogs has called on President Vladimir Zelensky to resolutely condemn the attacks and take over control of the investigation on who 
who is responsible. Well, joining me now from Kyiv is Christopher Miller, the Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times and author of The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Christopher, welcome back to the programme. Now, you've just published an article on this topic. Can you tell us how journalists are being targeted in Ukraine? Yeah, unfortunately, it's uh, several units of of investigative journalists working for various outlets here that are being targeted in in various ways. This has sort of started to bubble up in in recent months as some of these investigative journalists have worked to uncover uh, corruption within the government and um, uh, particularly the the defense ministry. And some of these attacks have have started online in uh, anonymous telegram channels that are uh, closely associated with, at least in terms of their messaging and the the guests that they um, that they they have on um, their their channels and 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 who they're focused on, um, closely associated with uh, the presidential administration, Volodymyr Zelensky's um, administration, government, and and their their uh, you know campaign. They are they're they're smears um, online. Um, you know, they're taking personal jabs at some of these journalists. They're looking back in uh, their their portfolio of work to the things that they have reported on. Um, there's been a, a a real sense of unity in Ukraine throughout uh, the the full scale invasion um, since Russia launched its war, and a lot of um, society and people around um, uh, the presidential administration have not wanted. Uh, journalists essentially to write critically of their own country, of their government, of their authorities, but rather to focus their attention on Russia. So these attacks have, have started online um, around the reporting and now have escalated, unfortunately, into uh, what media watchdogs here are, are saying, you know, in the real world. So one investigative journalist who uncovered corruption within the defense ministry last year, forcing the defense minister at the time, Alexei Reznikov, to resign, got a very unwelcoming visit to his apartment here in Kiev, where a group of unknown men began pounding on the doors of his apartment, um, shouting slurs at him, calling him a traitor. Um, a provocateur and saying that they were going to forcibly mobilize him and send him to the front line. So those are among the many things that have happened. Another one is the uh, covert surveillance of a group of investigative reporters. So as you say, I mean, people are implying that Zelensky's government could be behind uh, the attacks, wanting to shut down any reports that, that question the administration. But I wonder if this is just the kind of behaviour one would expect for Russian trolls wishing to damage Zelensky's image. Yeah, that's certainly an element of this. And there are people within um, Zelensky's government and people watching these attacks online, some of which are coming from anonymous telegram channels saying, you know, this this does look like Russian disinformation, Russian information attacks. We've seen these things before in Ukraine. So certainly there is a concern that, uh, you know, this also could be uh, Russia masking itself as um, Ukrainian critics and going after these uh, these particular groups. Um, you know, but but we have seen these these types of online attacks um, before. We know that Zelensky's administration, while while vocally um, a free press, has curtailed some uh, uh, press freedoms during the war. Uh, and and there have been calls in recent months um, to uh, go back to a uh, a more freeish uh, you know pre-war um, society with fewer restrictions on the media. And so it's all sort of coming to a head <clears throat> at the moment. And Zelensky himself did say uh, this week in one of his evening addresses that there should be no pressure um, exerted on journalists and uh, calling for an investigation into this. And he had his security services and national police now launch criminal probes into the matters. Christopher, thank you very much indeed. That's Christopher Miller there. And this is Monocle Radio. Mm-hmm.
It is 8.35 in Zurich, 7.35 here in London. Now, it's Friday, which means it's time to hear our contributing editor, Andrew Muller's take on what we've learned this week. We learned this week that the United States has never been a racist country. To be clear, we did not learn that the United States has never been a racist country, give or take slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, lynchings, the Indian Removal Act, the internment of Japanese Americans, the Ku Klux Klan, righto, you've got the idea, we don't have all day. We learned that it has just never been racist. And we learned this from Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina and US ambassador to the UN, now one of the Republican candidates trying to lose the contest for their parties nomination for the presidency to a mentally ill con man by the smallest possible margin. No, we're we're not a racist country, Brian. We've never been a racist country. Speaking of whom, we learned that former President Donald Trump was determined to be unhelpful to Haley's breezy thesis, as we learned that joining the long list of tawdry manoeuvres he is not above is sneeringly referring to Haley in social media posts by her more obviously foreign-sounding first name, Nimarata, and amplifying a rumour that Haley is ineligible for the presidency due to her immigrant parents not being US citizens at the time of her birth. To be clear, they were, and she is. We also learned from said posts that Trump cannot spell Nimarata, which, to be honest, isn't that complicated, though as is so very often the case, it is difficult to tell whether Trump is being deliberately malicious or just a massive idiot or both. Ten more months of this, folks. Anyway. No money, baby. I just got an old wristwatch on my own. Sticking with the subject of people who leveraged fame initially acquired in showbiz circles to reach high office in the United States, we learned that former governor of California and in fairness not the worst mediocre Austrian artist who has ever run a government, Arnold Schwarzenegger, had been running for watch trafficking? Was that really literally a clip of a watch ticking? Is that what that was? We learned that Schwarzenegger had been detained on arrival in Munich, again, not the first mediocre Austrian artist, etc., when customs officials found in his luggage a posh timepiece. Righto, we learned that Schwarzenegger had brought this high-end wristwear to Germany with a view to auctioning it at some charity wingding. But had neglected to fill in the pertinent forms or something, and how very unlike German officialdom to be humorless sticklers for bureaucratic propriety. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Yeah. We learned further, and those of our listeners who may have been tempted by the thought of a new career as watch runners should pay careful attention, that if one gets rumbled attempting to smuggle contraband past customs in Germany, it is no small change. We learned that Schwarzenegger had been stung for a total of 35 grand, and that under German law, half of that has to be paid in cash, which necessitated a trip to the bank under police escort. Nevertheless, we're glad Schwarzenegger got to keep the watch and was able to proceed with the fundraiser. Such a worthy initiative surely deserves a big hand. Boo! Boo. Tomatoes! 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 Tomat
And we learned that the Pope is unkeen on online pornography. Bear with us. We grant that it would probably have seemed like bigger news if the Pope had announced that he was in fact all for online pornography and had enjoined his congregation to have at it, fill your boots, knock yourselves out, etc. But we confess to being mildly entranced by the reason that His Holiness felt it necessary to make his objections clear. Which was, we learn, the resurfacing of a book written some while back by Argentinian prelate Victor Manuel Fernandez, a friend as well as compatriot of the pontiff and recently appointed head of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, which does sound fearfully important. Can I get a portentous thunderclap? We learned that Cardinal Fernandez had, as a younger priest, published a book entitled Mystical Passion, Spirituality and Sensuality, and that this in itself was a follow-up to an earlier Fernandez treatise entitled Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing. We further learned that chapter headings in Mystical Passion included the following, as will be intoned by Monocle's Stop It or You'll Go Blind desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco the fire of divine love, a well of sublime passion, a crazy love story. My beautiful one, come. We learned that all of the above had placed Pope Francis in an awkward spot, several of his colleagues apparently unconvinced that all this amounted to an entirely appropriate literary CV for a senior cleric, and that the attendant embarrassment was what had prompted His Holiness to issue his anti-pornography harumph. We have not as yet learned whether or not this will prove sufficient to placate critics of Fernandez and thereby forestall the necessity of the Pope. And now that we approach the punchline, we are starting to wonder if the build-up was all worth attending towards. Not really, to be honest, but you be the judge. And thereby forestall the necessity of the Pope having to fire the cannon. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks to Andrew. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Time now to talk business with Susanna Streeter, Head of Money and Markets at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Susanna, many thanks for joining us here on The Globalist. Uh, We're going to start looking at UK retail sales. Uh, They fell sharply in December. Tell us more. Yes, this was the sharpest drop since the UK was in a COVID uh, lockdown. So back in January 2021, when retail sales tumbled as fast as this. So they're down 3.2% in December. Now, there had been some expectation that retail sales would fall back because the ONS had flagged 
in its survey at the end of November that a big chunk of people, around half of people, were certainly planning to spread the costs of presents and Christmas and buy goods earlier. And certainly that does seem as though it's the case. People snatch up Black Friday bargains and then snap their purses shut again uh, because it's not just uh, food uh, that declined slightly, but it's really non-food that declined very sharply, particularly sales at department stores. They had a really tough time. Sales down 7.1%. So um, this, I think, does indicate that perhaps the UK economy is already in a a mild recession um, because uh, obviously the latest figures um, for GDP uh, showed that they stagnated. But obviously, with uh, more shoppers being a lot more cautious as time has gone on, it certainly uh, does indicate that uh, perhaps the economy is started to shrink two consecutive quarters. Mm. And I mean, looking at food sales, I mean, you'd expect that to increase in December and with with, with it actually going down. I mean, it, it tells us terrible things about how people are really not affording to eat. Well, it's volumes that have gone down, uh, certainly. And when you look at um, uh, the discount retailers and their results over Christmas, where they really did clean up, taking um, more market share. And those uh, bigger supermarkets, for example, Tesco's, the big focus on value, also um, saw sales increase. But certainly, I think what you're seeing is that consumers are having to make some much more difficult choices about what to buy, what to spend their money on. And certainly those at the lower end of the income scale are facing the toughest time. Uh, We put out our latest savings and resilience barometer from Hargreaves Lansdowne uh, this week that showed that the lowest fifth of earners are seeing their financial resilience really take another hit. Well, actually, those on higher incomes, uh, the wealthier in society, um, they're actually seeing their financial situation get a little bit better. And uh, so this gap between uh, the poor and the wealthy does appear to be widening. Mm. Well, whether you shop at Tesco or Waitrose, you're now going to have uh, more ways to pay because it looks like we are going to be returned the choice of actually uh, going to an actual checkout with a real person. Yes, it does seem as though that could be the way this grand experiment in robot cashiers certainly has been fraught with difficulty. I mean, stores across the country um, in uh, the United States, but also some here in the UK seem to be reversing course on the machines. And uh, there is a bit of a growing consensus that self-checkout has been far from the cost-cutting and efficiency-boosting panacea that firms had hoped for. In fact, I wrote a recent article, uh, a column for the Evening Standard, uh, London's Evening Standard, about this, about the very fact that as these self-checkouts have been introduced into stores, we are becoming increasingly isolated. It is a very isolated shopping experience now. I used to chat to uh, Lindsay, the cashier at my local Sainsbury's. Lindsay's gone somewhere in a back room, I think, or or perhaps working through the night, stacking shelves. And instead, you're met with frustration and uh, almost penned in as well until you can scan a receipt to show you haven't stolen the goods. Uh, But unfortunately, all of this technology isn't stopping shoplifting. We're seeing shoplifting actually creep up. Not only is it easier to steal at these check Accounts, uh, because uh, you could, for example, um, scan a cheaper item and put a more expensive one in the basket, weighing around the same. And that's certainly what uh, some people have been doing. Um, but also people just get simply frustrated with the technology not working and actually end up taking things by mistake or, or scanning things when they shouldn't have done. Uh, and so actually it's not turning out to be great. And I think what 
what has been interesting to note is that as these self-checkout machines proliferated, so have the number of coffee shops. Coffee shops seem to be doing very well. And I think there's a reason for that. People want human contact and they're not getting it in the supermarkets oh, chatting with the cashier like they used to. Very true. Well, I shan't miss them at all, the uh, automated checkouts. Uh, let's now turn to the Middle East. And of course, uh, the tension there is having a, uh, an effect on oil prices. Yes, yeah, so um, Brent crude futures have, have largely held on to recent gains to around $79 a barrel. And they are on track to end the week uh, with gains because, of course, the widening conflict in the Middle East. And um, there's also some kind of improving um, outlook on oil demand. But, of course, uh, with the geopolitical risk increasing, that has continued to boost the uh, the oil market. The U.S. has carried out more strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen in response to uh, the group's repeated attacks on shipping. Now, of course, you have these tensions between Iran and Pakistan and attacks from both sides on purported uh, terrorist uh, bases. Um, so certainly I don't think you're going to see um, oil prices drop back any time soon, markedly, uh, while this uh, uh, tension continues in the Middle East, and there's little end in sight. And of course, with these attacks in the Red Sea, it means that tankers um, are diverting, but also other goods are having to be shipped on much longer journeys around uh, the Cape of Good Hope, uh, adding to potential costs uh, for retailers, uh, adding to their woes, um, with, of course, already a demand um, falling back as we've seen these retail uh, sales figures, but their costs could also end up increasing as well. Oh, yes. Uh, finally, let's talk about Birkenstocks because uh, the company is investing, it's opening more stores, but seems like uh, the shareholders are not uh, on board with that. No, uh, because uh, it's really the results that came out showing um, that profits fell last year that has made investors pretty nervous. Now, these results were the first since the company listed its shares in the United States. Uh, shares dropped by more than 8% and the results, they were down by t- around 10% at one point. So at the same time, demand for the iconic sandals seems to be waning uh, and the company wants to um, spend more to increase the number of stores where these um, sandals are sold. Um, but, you know, investors are a bit sceptical about the strategy, whether or not the, the frenzy around Birkenstock helped by the Barbie boost will continue because, of course, we're pretty fickle when it comes to fashion. And I think there is a bit of unease about what lies ahead for Birkenstocks, particularly as when you see lots of other big brands uh, from uh, Burberry to to Nike flagging um, that is pretty weak in the market right now with consumers turning more cautious. Susanna, thank you very much indeed. That's Susanna Streeter there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. And finally, as we edge closer to the 2024 Academy Awards, our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, caught up with the director of The Holdovers, a dramatic comedy that's getting Oscars buzz. Set in the 1970s, it follows three lonely people at a New England boarding school over a winter break. And it's been hailed as one of the best and cosiest films of 2023. Well, Alexander began by explaining which 1930s French film inspired the premise of the movie. 
Mr. Hunnam. Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on us. Oh. I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. Filmmakers are always just looking for a decent premise. I just need a hook on which to hang the meat of the rest of the film. About a dozen years ago, I was at a film festival and caught a little-known Marcel Pagnol film from 1935, which had the same essential premise. Not the same story at all. The, the stories are in, go in wildly different directions, but the premise was good. And I left the cinema thinking, oh, that's a good... How about another movie could be made off that same general premise? But I didn't do anything with it for years until I met David Hemmingson, who had written a pilot, which I had read, that took place in a boarding school. So I contacted him and I said, hey, I've read your pilot. Would you consider writing a feature in that world? Because it was a world I myself didn't know, nor had I begun the research. It was a minor miracle finding David Hemmingson. What about the script? Uh, because you usually write the script for your own films. What, how, how was your collaboration with him? How did this work out? It was my first experience, let's say, directing a writer. I asked him if he would write a script based on a premise I gave him. We worked together for the general storyline, which is to say he proposed three, four, five different storylines, and I selected the one I thought was most interesting to me. And then as he was writing drafts or even sections of drafts, he'd run them by me and I'd read them and give notes or suggest this or that. And then when we had a finished script, I would do some rewriting myself and then give it back to him. And a nice, it was a lovely collaboration between the two of us. And apparently something that you, I mean, changed a minor, well, not a minor thing, but it's the decade, right? That is that you wanted the 70s, not the 80s in a way. I didn't even remember that his pilot was set in the 80s. He and I just had this premise, and we knew it couldn't be contemporary because there are no more single-sex boarding schools. So it had to be a period film, just mechanically. And then I've always wanted to start making period films. I haven't just hadn't gotten to it yet. And the selection of 1970 just felt right to the both of us. It gave him tools to work with. I mean, in the production design, cinematography, even the way it was filmed, it felt very much like a movie from the 70s, but even the way you filmed, right? I mean, which I thought it was quite a sweet touch as well. Thanks for thinking it was a sweet touch. Yes. I thought it would be an interesting challenge mm -hmm. to have the film not just set in 1970, but to some degree made to look and sound as though it had been made in 1970. What about the cast? I mean, of course, your relationship with Paul Giamatti, I mean, you reunited almost 20 years after, right, sideways. But what about the others? I mean, of course, Da Vinci has had an amazing performance. But one thing I was surprised, I just want to mention his name's right, Dominique Cessau. Is it true that's his first time on screen? That's unbelievable. He had never even been in a short film before. That's crazy. This was his first time in front of a camera. But he was already, I mean, at his level, an accomplished actor. We found him in a high school, indeed one of the very high schools where I shot the movie. So he was a star in their drama department, was applying to acting programs at universities. So that was his path, is his path, but I just feel very lucky to have found him. And what about Paul? How was it to reunite with him after 20 years, more or less? Ever since the last day of photography on sideways I'd been wanting to work with Paul again and he with me and so it finally happened it might have happened sooner if I were faster with screenplays 
but it hadn't, but it didn't happen. Alexander, something we were talking <clears throat> off the record here, but you know about the name of the film in several countries we're discussing. I mean, are you involved with any of that? I mean, it's quite, it's quite an interesting one. Like even, I just came back from Brazil. It's called The Rejected. There was Rejeitados. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think are are I, you interested I, in, in those? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I even get involved in uh, the dubbing and subtitling scripts in Italian, Spanish, French, and German. I don't speak German, but I still worked enough to be able to figure out what was being said. But I take, we put so much care into the title of and the dialogue inside these movies that I can't just leave it to these other countries to wreck it. I hope they're not doing that. Yeah. Just coming back as well from one of the film, I said the film was filmed like if it was in the 70s, the score and the, the music was fantastic. And I think, I hope the score will do well as well. Uh, yes. <laughs> and it was a long and uh, lovely collaboration among, so we, we were a triumvirate, myself, Kevin Tent, the editor, and Richard Ford, the London-born music editor we worked with for 25 years. So that's as we're figuring everything out. And then, obviously, the, the composer as well, in this case, a fellow named Mark Orton, who had previously done my film, Nebraska, uh, 10 years ago. But it's a long, long process of seeing what's right for the movie, what supports the rhythm, what supports the comedy, what supports the emotion, without ever calling attention to itself. And then, of course, it with in this one, an additional element, which is uh, popular music of the period, both used both as score and as music that's being played by the characters. So it all took a long time, and you can get it in shape to where it works for the movie, and then you're faced with the reality of what you can afford. And then you have to switch things out, even often at the last minute. By the way, we're here in England. Labby Sifri, are you familiar with him? No, actually. So he was a, an English singer-songwriter who came to prominence in the early 70s. He's still alive. He lives in Spain. He was a discovery for me. And now Rolling Stone magazine has done an article on him based on his presence in, on the soundtrack of The Holdovers. So anyway, all a long-winded way of saying we put a lot of time into that. And if it works, I'm happy. Amazing. Alexander, thank you so much. Thanks, Fernando. Thank you so much. Muito obrigado. That was Fernando Augusto Pacheco speaking to Alexander Payne, director of The Holdovers, which is out now worldwide. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers Isabella Jewell, Laura Kramer and Emma Searle, our researcher Neoma Ekwe and our studio manager Tamsin Howard, with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist will return at the same time on Monday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>